Hello and welcome to Android Bytes, powered by Esper. I'm David Ruddick, and each week I'm joined by my co-host Michelle Rahman as we dive deep into the world of Android. And this week, we're touching on the intersection of two industries that I think, I, I think everybody in the Android world likes gaming a little bit at least. So we're going to talk about Android and gaming hardware. Michelle, yeah, we have a very special guest to introduce. Thanks, David. I think, you know, the guest, the company that he works for, I think needs no introduction. You know, Asus has been around for literally decades. And unless you're totally unfamiliar with computing hardware, in which case I'm kind of curious how you even ended up listening to this podcast in the first place, this tech brand, you know, they have their hands in all sorts of PC and PC adjacent spaces. And their Republic of Gamers or ROG sub-brand is particularly well known among PC gamers. You may not know, or probably have heard if you're an Android enthusiast, that Asus, they also make smartphones. They have been doing so for quite some time, actually. They weren't smartphones before Android came to the market, but they were making phones before Android was a thing. But today, their two most prominent Android smartphone lines, the Zenfone, which is like a regular for the average everyday user, and the ROG phone lineup. The Zenfone started in 2014, the ROG lineup started in 2018, respectively. So today on the show, as David mentioned, we invited a guest to talk about gaming hardware. So we've invited Chihao Kung, who's the global technical PR for smartphones at Asus, to talk to us about this intersection between mobile gaming hardware and Android. So thank you for joining us, Chihao. Yeah, thank you very much. Happy to be here. So it's been over four years since the first ROG phone was released, and there have been four successors to it. The most recent one being the ROG Phone 6 series, which was announced last month, I believe. So for those wondering why there's been four successors in four years, even though we're now at the ROG Phone 6 series, look up the superstition around the number four, and then you'll understand why there's a lot of brands that just skip the number four entirely. So anyway, back to the topic at hand. Clearly, Asus believes in and is invested in its gaming phone lineup, considering there are now four successors to the original ROG Phone. Yet, from what I've read online, you know, seeing the earnings reports, this belief hasn't converted into profitability. So I wanted to ask you, Chiao, what about the mobile gaming market drives Asus to continue its investment? Right. I think it's a good question. I won't comment so much about the profitability or the financial aspects of it, but rather, if we look at the gaming aspect or the ROG phone lineup, you know, our ROG Republic of Gamers brand, it's been around for, for quite some time. So why do we do the ROG phone, right? Why, why do we invest into this category? It really boils down to what the brand is, what the brand ROG, Republic of Gamers, what do we want to do with that brand? And what does that brand want to provide for, uh, let's say, our, our users throughout the ages, you know, categories. So ROG originally started as making motherboards, right? So it was uh, the, the first product we put the ROG label on it was uh, one of our more high-end motherboards. And that was designed with more enthusiast features. So over the years, the ROG brand is, if you follow Asus closely, which I assume most people don't, but you know, in, in the industry, you will find that we kind of branch out into almost every aspect of gaming in terms of gaming peripherals, gaming hardware. If it's with gaming, there's going to be a product or most likely with the ROG logo on it, right? Gaming phones is not an exception, but what took us so long in a way, right? I think one is, is the hardware ready for it? And is the timing correct? Do we see 
that segment of gamers become significant enough? And are the existing solutions good enough to address that niche or that need in a way? So we might not always go head on at the beginning, I should say, but uh, if gamers are moving somewhere or adding in, let's say, a way to play games, we strive to meet them in that area, right? Be it the DIY PC, traditional PC builds, all the components inside, or be it laptops, you know, gaming peripherals, headsets, game keyboards, mice, monitors, and of course, gaming phones, the topic of today. So I think that kind of gives a good explanation why we continue to invest into this. The smartphone is maybe arguably the most personal smart device that we own, right? Most of us own tons of different devices, but the smartphone is the one that's closest to us or that we touch on most of during the day. So it also keeps us connected to people, to users or to gamers in this specific, you know, how people interact with devices. I think that's an important aspect of product design. So in that sense, it, it makes a lot of sense for us to engage into this category and, and develop it and see what we can do with it. So I don't think anyone would argue that smartphones aren't a big market. They're absolutely massive. Literally, like everyone who's connected to the internet in some way probably owns a smartphone. But a couple of weeks ago, we talked about different segments of the smartphone market. We talked about small phones, for example. You know, is there actually a market for people to invest in and will people actually buy a small phone? And that's actually up for debate, considering not many companies are making small phones, Asus being one of the rare examples. But that's going to be thinking, you know, just because... There are gamers who have a smartphone and there's a lot of gamers and there's a lot of smartphone users. How big is that intersection? Are there actually a lot of people who game on smartphones? How big is the mobile gaming market? Is there actually a huge market for you to tap into? Can you talk to us a bit about that? Sure. I think in terms of absolute size, I would say most smartphone users are not gaming smartphone users, right? And they are most likely not going to be. So that's on the, let's say, the more pessimistic end of the spectrum, I have to look at it. And then on the more positive look or optimistic end is almost everyone who uses a smartphone has played games on their smartphone. Of course, this, generally speaking, will be uh, casual games, some easy form of game to just kill some time, simply because that's the device you have with you. So, but that gives the potential of growth, right? But also we see several years, I think it's, you know, four years for us, five years, but very rapidly, a slow start, but increasing very, very fast. We see a huge chunk of users where gaming on their smartphone is their primary platform. Now that might seem a bit odd, perhaps, to most of us. I, I generalize by saying us, you know, the three of us coming, let's say, from the more westernized, the mature markets in that sense. Maybe if I could just jump in with an analogy here, it's sort of like, imagine if in 1992, you had a Game Boy, but not an NES. Like, that would be super weird. <laughs> <laughs> right. But also, we see that if I just look at myself, how many gaming platforms have I owned over the years? Not all of them, but you know, most of them. And how many do I use at the same time? It's a game on a PC. I obviously game on a smartphone. I have portables. I actually don't have a, a less traditional, you know, Xbox or a PlayStation at home, but I could have. So it's not mutually exclusive for, let's say, us or let's say Europe. And we see, of course, uh, markets like North America where the console is very, very strong. 
But if we kind of pivot that perspective a bit and look at markets in to the east, such as China, where game consoles have not been a thing for various reasons, right? And you see markets uh, developing uh, countries where the cost of ownership, in a way, is prohibitive. Disposable income, what you choose to put your disposable income on, it, it, it is vastly different. So we do see you know, nowadays everybody grows up with a smartphone. Not just you know us here with that privilege, but also in a lot of countries with huge populations. You know, obviously, China, you know, markets like Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, Latin America. Everybody has a smartphone, but not everyone has a gaming PC. You know, the the entry. For me, I've been gaming for 30-something years. So it's very natural for me to game on those, let's say, legacy systems, right? But it's very easy to forget also that a PC is quite a large investment, especially if you're going to game on it. Console is obviously cheaper, but there's also a lot of games cost money and these type of things. So smartphone is something that we naturally, a lot of people invest money on, and then they are capable to play games. I say capable, uh, not all smartphones obviously play games well. Uh, so we do see a large population, especially markets in, in Asia, who have only a smartphone, started their, let's say, gaming career, right? Playing games on a smartphone. If we look at, you know, just my kids, even, you know, in, in our part of the world, they grew up playing games on a smartphone before they played games on a, a PlayStation or an Xbox or a Nintendo, whatever that may be, right? That's their perspective. They're very, very used to. It's not foreign to play games on a smartphone. For us, it's more like an addition because we didn't start off playing games on a smartphone. That was not how we used the smartphone. But that's not the same as kids today or people who don't have access to anything else, right? And then when you started gaming on a smartphone, and you know it's it's just a form of entertainment, and then you like that, that is your frame of reference, and you want to do it more, or you want it to perform better, and you may get into competitive games. It's the same lineage as PC gamers, you know, playing Counter Strike twenty something right years ago. It's it's the same. You kind of start upgrading. So once that momentum gets going, we do see that there are a lot of, uh, or let's say more and more people playing games on a smartphone and not because lack of choice, right? Because the preference and wanting to have better performing hardware because gaming on a smartphone, it occupies more and more of their usage scenario in that sense of the smartphone. So that becomes a, a dominating thing. Uh, if we look at the tech world from our perspective, we see a lot of people or the industry in general, putting a lot of emphasis on cameras, right? Cameras and photography on a smartphone, as if we assume that is the one thing, that's the single one thing that everybody who buys a smartphone, that's what they're going to do. They're going to spend all of their time taking photos and shooting video. So that becomes, you know, we, we just need the best. Definitely that that's true for some. And in the same vein, right? It's this gaming performance is for those extremes. There are these people who spend a lot of time uh, playing games and they want the best smartphone for that. And so that's kind of where we go in. And I think that market grows more and more, larger every year, definitely. So is there a sizable market? I believe so, yes. And is it growing? Yes, it is. Uh, we do see that it is, you know, 
as the population grows, I think it's a good analogy. We, we talk about it uh, internally for many, many years. The number of gamers do not decrease, right? It, the the, the right. pool of people who, are, who become gamers just keeps increasing because you, you don't stop being a gamer, right? It's just a form of entertainment. You know, it's not like you started watching movies and then suddenly you don't watch movies or you suddenly hate watching movies. It's a choice of what you do, but it's just an additional thing. And now playing games, it's not stigmatized at all, right? Growing up maybe 20 something, 30 years ago, it could be, yeah. I thought, you know, it was a bit niche. Nowadays, it's just, nobody's going to look at you differently, you know, strangely, if you say you like playing sports or you want to go to the movies or, you know, you, know, you play games. It's very normal. So that pull just increases. And then the way we play how we do it, where we do it, on what platform. It's just diverging, right? And, and smartphone is hey, a big part of that. I, I mean, the data, I agree with you yeah, totally on all this. Uh, because the thing that really resonated to me when you're talking about when a person first games, more commonly that's on a tablet or a smartphone now. And more specifically, it's a touch experience. They expect to be able to interact with the display um, I've had people tell me like, you know, oh, I've got kids and they will literally walk up and try to touch any screen like a giant TV yeah. just because they expect that interaction model. The analog that I bring up is there are all these people out there who say, oh, I hate talking to my computer. I don't want to talk to Google or Alexa or whoever. And my response is, guess what? You're going to because your kids are doing that. And that's their first interaction with a computer. A lot of the time growing up, they come to expect that interaction model. So I think that totally tracks. Obviously, kids who get into gaming and get into gaming on a phone are going to want to have a good gaming phone. Right, exactly. And, you know, it's, it's not always close to our hearts in the way because we grew up in different times. I mean, every generation has their own way of entertainment or interacting with devices. Just as you say, you know, the first kids now touching a device, touch interaction is just second nature, right? They don't need to learn it. It's just there. But we had to learn it because that wasn't necessarily the first, you know, oh, touch is so bad. But then, you know, you, know, you kind of realize that, no, it's pretty smart, right? And, you know, gaming, we, we grew up gaming on joysticks, you know, one stick, two buttons or a D-cross, a D-pad. But is that really, I tend to think about my own behavior, is that really the best way to play games? And, you know, going on, you know, I, I, it's a fair the, point. Right. It's a bit of a tangent, I think, the, the comment I'm, I'm about to make. But one of the things I really thought about recently this year was the Steam controller. The controller that they made a few years ago, right, was very polarizing because it prominently featured that capacitive touch pad, right? Yeah. And, and people hated it. But if you think about, you know, if you're playing mobile games, mobile games, they do play best with touch. And it makes sense because you can have a much finer grain control with a touchpad, especially on a smaller surface than with a, you know, a digital D-pad or even sometimes with the joystick. So they really had something smart going on there. I think maybe the kind of the adoption rate wasn't very good, probably because that's not what, how we're used or the target demographic we're used to controlling games. But yeah, uh, times change. I think that's the takeaway. Yeah. And they were certainly, I guess, ahead of their time, which brings me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is gaming phones themselves. The recent wave of gaming phones pretty much started around four, four and a half years ago, but 
they've actually existed well before that. There have been gaming phones going back more than a decade with the Nokia N-Gage, which was like, I was literally a child and that thing was out, so I have zero experience using that thing. But apparently people really loved it, and there are still some efforts to get like uh, Java games ported to it and keep it alive. And then uh, I do remember the Sony Xperia Play, because like that thing was so cool. It was around the time when Sony was really trying to get PlayStation gamers to actually buy the Sony Xperia phones. That didn't really pan out. Then there were a couple of other interim gaming devices released. None of them also really panned out because they also were kind of clunky, kind of GBA-style form factors. And then that brings us to late 2017 with the Razer Phone 1, with the first Razer Phone. And then just a few months later, the ROG Phone, the Xiaomi Black Shark, the Nubia Red Magic. You just all of a sudden had four different brands release four different dedicated gaming smartphones. And this wave, I'm actually wondering, like, what led this wave to kick off? Because surely, you know, a lot of these devices had to have been in development behind the scenes for at least a year. And so for all of these to suddenly be released in 2017, 2018, there had to have been something that drove the market to say, we got to do this now. We can't wait. It wasn't just like one company released it and everyone said, oh, we got to do this ourselves. I mean, obviously, I, you wouldn't be able to talk about it, but Blink twice if it's a Qualcomm partner program that's starting around <laughs> that time. <laughs> I mean, I can't comment on that part. But I think if we look back on the mobile space, devices like the Engage or the Xperia Play, they're good examples. I wouldn't call them, I wouldn't say that they've failed or they didn't pan out in so far. It's really difficult to say why we don't see an Engage 16 or whatever iteration it would be on, right? I could be many reasons, obviously, but I would say if you look back at two decades or something like that, right, of smartphones that we've had now, you can find almost every form or every form factor, not just for gaming that we're talking about here, but you, you saw some really wild designs of smartphones in the past. So really, really crazy stuff. And you still kind of do, I guess. I guess it's more homogenous now, but that's kind of smartphones was a frontier of technology and, and still is in a way today where you try different things, you play around with it. The market is huge. And because the market is huge, there is also room to do things differently, right? And we look at the current crop or, you know, as you said, around uh, 2017, 2018, lots of different gaming smartphones. I think it's why do we see a lot of gaming? I think that time, the mobile gaming market really started booming as well, maybe a few years prior to that. And then it's more of, uh, of course, uh, the Chinese market being a, a big driving factor of that. You know, we have huge gaming publishers there, uh, first party uh, game producers for mobile. So that kind of started getting a lot of traction and we started seeing games, more and more games, I should say, kind of that critical mass of good games or great games that required more from your hardware from your device i should say kind of pushing entry into that segment and of course gaming phones have changed a bit from the first ones especially the you know the ones that we made but overall they've been following similar formulas i think which is slightly different from the uh, let's say original gaming smartphones like if we mentioned the engage or the even the xperia play right they were trying to be gaming handhelds first or primarily. They weren't being gaming smartphones, right? They were kind of being PSPs or, or GBAs, but with phone capability, you could kind of call on them. So, so maybe that's kind of what went wrong in a way. 
because they were trying to be something that could then easily be replaced by a, a dedicated handheld gaming device. So right. if you, you know, and if they also missed the confluence of like the internet and connectivity really was right. the big one, you know, where everybody they, was online and suddenly that mattered so much more than like the gaming functionality. Yeah. I mean, they were in a way they designed themselves to be a secondary device, which is perfectly fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're making a first primary device, but you're making it so it becomes a secondary device, then people are going to treat it as secondary device and buy another device as your first device. But then it becomes when you're a secondary device, then you're competing with the other secondary devices for whatever niches that may be. It can be a lot of different niches. And if we take gaming as a niche, if your gaming smartphone or your smartphone that's gaming capable as a secondary device, then suddenly competes with Game Boys, PSPs, or what have you, right? And as a secondary device, you're going to lose against those devices. So when we looked at our G phone, it's a primary device. It's a primary device that's designed around gaming. It's not a gaming console, right? It's still a smartphone. So you need to have, or we strive to, obviously, uh, to make a good smartphone experience. It doesn't mean that it has to be the absolute best at everything that a smartphone can do, but it has to have that fundamental smartphone experience because we don't expect you to use, or the people who buy the ROG phone or use the ROG, we don't expect them to use another smartphone. Surely some people do, you know, they carry on two devices, but that's not the fundamental design logic of that device. And maybe that's where this current crop of phones got it more correct in a way, perhaps. Well, I mean, I'd say there's clear evidence of it succeeding. And considering the absolute size of the mobile gaming market, I think there's no going back. Like this is going to continue to be a product niche. Like I read a recent report from Protocol that cited an analyst from Newzu. The mobile gaming market is projected to reach $100 billion this year, just an unfathomable number. And that's out of a total of projected $200 billion overall for the gaming market. So just half of the entire gaming industry, which is already bigger than Hollywood, like way bigger than Hollywood. It's just mobile gaming. And that's just, just, it's just insane. Like just so much money there. It's, it's, it's really hard for us in the West, you know, where grew up with console gaming and PC gaming to wrap our heads around just how big mobile gaming is and how much money can be made from it. Oh yeah. And I'm sure, you know, you can speak to this as well, but what I always noticed early on covering Android, for example, Android market carrier billing was such a huge deal globally when it rolled out. People were so excited and I couldn't understand at the time, but what I came to understand was microtransactions are so immensely popular, especially in SE Asia. And at the time, carrier billing was the way most people processed their microtransactions. They would bill through the carrier. Now, obviously we've moved on to lots of direct to consumer banks and debit situations, online banks, et cetera, in Asia. But I think you still have that cultural trend, whereas in the West, microtransactions are a new thing. And consumers in the West generally react quite poorly to them because we are, I think, just, I would say maybe we expect ownership of software and things like that. We've been trained by that model. I think they're just like buying video games. You go to the store, you buy a video game, you get it in the box, you take it home. There's that cultural expectation. Whereas probably in Southeast Asia, online gaming for gambling and things like that have been popular for decades there. 
spending money online and then not really getting anything back aside from the joy of the experience of playing the game, that's so much more rooted there. And we have it in America. We have online gambling, of course. So when I look at like, okay, yeah, mobile gaming is poised to be this huge thing. Well, of course, people have been spending money in small quantities with the hope of winning something or otherwise, like, you know, just having a good time for ages. And this is another proliferation of that. You know, it's it's on a slot machine. It's a lot better than the slot machine, if you ask me. But people like this stuff. And I think they get a lot out of it. And it was hard for people in the West to understand that you could get that out of a phone. People could not relate to that idea. Meanwhile, they're playing Candy Crush for like six hours a day on their iPhone. Going back to kind of the, the way of, I'm saying we're as, you know, from our perspective here, is we're used to, as, as Michelle mentioned, you know, we're paying, or maybe it was, was you, uh, David, we'll, we'll pay for a game and then it's done. You know, I've, I've, I've made my transaction and there will be no more transactions. You know, that's how it's going to be. And, you know, you said that we're not so used to microtransactions in games here. That's correct. But also, in a way, I would say, if we look at microtransactions in entertainment, it's not that alien to us, right? We, you know, let's not talk about gambling. Video rentals, that's a microtransaction. You could buy the bit movie, but you can also rent it. And then you can rent it again and, and, and over and over, right? But you never get, got to keep it. And then you had these, uh, maybe even closer, you had these uh, arcades. Every five minutes, there was a microtransaction. That's a great analogy. Yeah. And they just kept putting money in and then you played games or you got these tickets and then you could turn the tickets in and you got the, you know, a, a plushie or something, right? Now, without going into the good and bad of that type of, uh, let's say, business model, I suppose, it's been around even in, let's say, uh, you know, quote unquote, Western cultures for, for a lot of time, not specifically in the mobile games or the gaming or the games, I should say, I shouldn't say gaming, but games, video games, right? But it's been part of our society as well for quite some time in other forms. It, you know, if it, I'm sure you can think of many, many other examples where this phenomenon exists. So this is just another pay phones. Definitely <laughs> pay as you go, you know, pay, you know, these type of things. It's, is it good? Is it bad? Well, I think everybody has an opinion on that. Definitely. It, it's, <laughs> It, times change. <laughs> Microtransactions are a hot topic. And, you know, since it's not a gaming podcast, I'd like to circle back and get back to gaming phones in particular, because I'm sure we have a lot more to discuss on gaming phones yeah, and Android. One of the things that I've noted while watching the rise of gaming phones is a lot of the hardware innovations that they first brought to market. Take, for example, Razer, one of the first ones to ship a 120 hertz display on a smartphone. They're widely credited with being the first. Although I believe Sharp did it first with a smartphone in Japan. But Asus was the first to ship a 90Hz OLED panel in the first ROG phone and the first to ship a 120Hz OLED ROG phone too. You're breaking barriers again with the 165Hz OLED display. I don't believe it's the first in the ROG phone 6, ROG phone 6. But, um, you know, there aren't many phones that can refresh that quickly. Gaming phones have also been pushing the boundaries when it comes to memory with devices like the RG Phone 5 Ultimate having a whopping 18 gigabytes of memory, which is more than an, a lot of people's laptops or even desktop PCs. So while on this subject, I wanted to ask you, Chihau, what are some of the other ways that gaming phones have driven innovation in the smartphone space? So like what other features have you seen trickle down from gaming phones to regular devices? Right. I think 
In terms of hardware, we of course see, as you mentioned, you know, panel animations or pushing the boundaries in panel technology refresh rates, these type of things. The amount of memory, obviously, that you put in that starts trickling down. You always quite frequently still get debate or comments or, or questions, you know, do I need 16 gigs of RAM? Do I need 18 gigs? Do I need 20? You know, we had the same discussion back when it was 12. Do I need 12 gigs of RAM? I, th- I don't think anyone questions that nowadays, but 12, we had questions on eight and so on, right? So gaming smartphones, by virtue of being a, a high performance platform in a way where we push the boundaries, enjoys the benefit of trying new things on it. So a lot of trickling down, you know, how cooling, I think most of the things that we talk about, cooling innovations, what are the things that we can do with cooling in that form factor, battery technology, size of battery charging, speeds, and these type of things. But also on the software end, we see, you know, we're trying a lot of things and stuff trickles down or they get implemented in, let's say, regular smartphone areas. But of course, I would also agree that the biggest innovation in a way that has impacted almost every flagship out there, regular smartphone, is the fast refresh rate. I remember still the discussions we had back with ROG Phone 1 with the 90 hertz, people asking us, why do you need a 90 hertz display? I can't see a difference. And that was not just a one-off comment. We heard that so, so much. You know, I can't see a difference. It's just going to eat up your battery. And now I don't think, you know, nobody claims that anymore. It's kind of by being first or, or pushing boundaries or doing things a bit differently, you get questions, do you really need that? And do you really need a fast refresh display? No, I guess the answer is no, but is it nice? Is it nicer? Yes. And cooling, as I mentioned, I think a lot of these, it's the experimentation. We see gaming phones equipped with RGB lights, lots of flashy stuff. They're just aesthetics. Just recently, we see another phone, right? Following the same vein, but leaning very heavily into that part instead. So we do see a lot of inspiration coming from a lot of different aspects of gaming phones. And, and gaming phones obviously take inspiration from a lot of other industries and areas, you know, not just from smartphones, but you know, we're looking at what we're doing on PC, on the larger platforms. And you know, there, there's just a lot of, I think the biggest trickling in a way is that to have that open mind, to allow us to try things, play around with it, to put a 6,000 milliamp hour battery inside a phone and then see what we can do with it. And that, that starts coming down. And, you know, we were one of the first to really, really push 5,000 milliamp hours in our phones. And now it's really, really common. So these things, uh, yeah, I think that's the best part of gaming phones. We, we just get to play around with them and, and do lots of fun stuff. And some work obviously very well, and some might stay on gaming smartphones only, or maybe they don't pan out and, and you know, start going away. So, yeah. One of the things that you brought up a couple of times and which actually has trickled down to other devices, you know, is, you know, the cooling technologies from what we've seen. For those of you who don't know, most ARM devices are fanless because ARM chips are intended to be placed inside of very low power devices, generally running low power workloads. But as we're seeing with ARM expanding into the realm of high performance computing, and we're seeing devices that need to be able to run high power workloads, especially gaming is one such very high demanding sustained workload. You need these devices to be able to run at their maximum or near their maximum clock speeds for both the CPU and the GPU. But doing that draws more power, it generates more heat, 
and it drains the battery. So you want to be able to sustain the performance while also reducing the heat generated so that you're actually able to hold the device in your hand while you're gaming. There's so many different things you can do to sustain that performance. You know, you can tweak the kernel to decide how to ramp up the clock speeds, when to ramp them up, like when to move tasks between the clusters in the, in the CPU. But then on the hardware side, you also have cooling solutions that are integrated into the design of the phone. We've heard of like graphite sheets or like copper vapor chambers. And these have been seen first and the innovations have been led by gaming hardware. And now a lot of, or at least most flagships at least have one form of internal cooling solution. They may not be as large or as robust as what's on gaming phones, but flagships these days tend to have them. So I wanted to ask you, Chihau, OEMs have to play this delicate balancing act between designing a flagship tier device with a flagship tier chipset, but considering this onward, this upward trend of these chips becoming more and more power hungry and more and more powerful, you have to keep up. These cooling advancements have to keep up with these more powerful chips. So what are some of the recent innovations that have come out in cooling that enable OEMs like Asus to tame these SOCs? Right. I think cooling in a smartphone is a topic that is very easily misunderstood, if I try to phrase myself. <laughs> Even experienced people or, or people experienced with tech often get it wrong or, or there are misconceptions of, of cooling, right? The innovations, or how should I say, the, the way we begin with, you know, the first thing, if we talk, you know, I could talk about cooling on smartphones forever, but one of the main things of cooling on a smartphone, uh, passively cool, right, is the size limitation you don't have a lot of physical size. It's not like a laptop. It's not like a big PC. And then the second thing is that heat, we tend to think about heat as in if my phone doesn't feel hot, then the cooling is doing its job. But that's not correct. That's the opposite. It's not <laughs> it's the opposite. Exactly. If your phone is cool to the touch and you know it's performing work and you know, it, you know it's, it's a powerful chip, it means simply or generalizing, it means we're masking the heat. We're hiding the heat from you, but it means the heat stays inside the device. But what does that mean then? When the heat stays inside or close to the chip, the chip gets hot, obviously, and then it will start throttling. It will start throttling down and, and lower its performance really, really fast. So that leads to, of course, lower performance. Gaming phones kind of exposed that a lot in the way that we prioritized sustained performance. I should say we as in Asus, right? Meaning the heat has to go somewhere. It has to go somewhere. So a lot of the cooling innovations that you mentioned of vapor chambers, heat pipes, graphite sheets, different you know, thermal compounds and these type of things, they work with transferring the heat away from the, the system or the chip that's producing it and moving it outwards, you know, however you would like to do it. And, and there are a lot of different ways and moving it away and, move, and spreading it around. So you see ever larger VCs and larger graphite sheets and these type of things is, it's in a way, it's a thermal soak. So you can envision it as a bathtub and then you have the heat is the faucet, right? So you have, you can have a small trickle of heat and, and you know, very little water, and then you don't need a lot of cooling at all, or you could, you need a type of cooling, you need a bathtub and that can just soak that water and a small, small drain, but it can keep up. 
But if your drain pipe in that way, your, or your outlet is too small, your bathtub is also too small, but the incoming flow of heat is too hot what ha- or too much, it, you know, your bathtub will overflow. So gaming phones have taken different routes. Some, you know, uh, you can have active cooling. You, you know, in our case, we don't so much believe in built-in cooling, but we have active cooling in the form of the fan. They are active cooler. And in the latest iteration, we do uh, with a thermoelectric chip, even more powerful cooler in that way. So that's basically one part of many of enlarging the tub, right? So if you think about the VCs that we do, gaming phones are big. And they are big for many, many reasons. One of the reasons, of course, is we add mass. We have a physical size that can eat that heat in a way, right? It will soak up the heat and we can use graphite sheets, different compounds. With ROG Phone 6, we use a very uh, unique and the first time, you know, a BN compound, a boron nitride thermal paste compound that we kind of sandwich in between the motherboards to draw heat from all angles and out into the midframe, towards the front, towards the back and spread them out. So that becomes the intermediary place for the heat to go, you know, out to the phone and then the fan then can extract that, you know, last bit if you want that ultimate performance. There's no magic in the way that if a smartphone is performing really, really fast, and given the performance of the flagship chips today, they are going to become hot. And that heat just has to go somewhere. It doesn't disappear. So if your phone is hot, then it's doing something, right? It's doing something correct, but also in a way, it's not nice. It's not that good because you don't want to feel you know, a hot phone. So yeah, I think that's kind of what we're trying to work on. How do we right. move the heat, avoid hot spots, spread them around, and then make sure we have a system to kind of extract that final bit. But it all depends on the performance target you're setting. Schedulers and the way we tune for games, that, that plays a big role as well. Quick question, just because this has always interested me and I've never talked to somebody who's actually like worked on a product, like a gaming phone in this way. So. One of my suspicions about gaming phones on the thermal side has long been that many users play while charging and that this creates like heat soak situations with the battery. And that is a big part of the increased thermal workload. You're much more likely to throttle when you soak the battery because that's the biggest heat sink in the whole damn phone. And once it gets warm, like, what do you do? So is that something that like, you know, y'all have designed around? Yeah, there, there are a few ways that we could do it. Obviously, uh, you know, how do we cool the batteries? And um, we have a feature called the uh, bypass charging that allows you to basically turn off charging the batteries at will. Generally, it's inside our kind of gaming software. So you turn that on if you want to uh, while playing uh, your game. And the charger will provide power to the system, but not additionally charge the, the battery. So that's one part. I would say... Charging the phone while gaming is one part that adds stress to the system, obviously, or adds heat. Another one, which people might not think about, is having mobile data on the radios. And then now when we go up to 5G, they can produce quite a lot of heat. I don't know if you, you know, you can try it. Put your phone, set it to download big files, and just download a five gigabyte file. It's I have a Pixel 6 Pro. I, I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, it's going to get hot. And, you know, the CPU is not doing a lot of things, but the modem is, and that adds a lot of heat. And, you know, you have people playing games and then they're downloading stuff in the background or a specific game keeps loading and then you're adding the charger, this and that. Just, there are so many variables. And, of course, we try to kind of work around that uh, to the best of our ability, but that's just what makes 
a gaming smartphone, I guess. Uh, right. you know, it, 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 there are different ways to we need to approach it. You know, everything you just described with how to actually educate the user, it's an evergreen problem. I wish you the best of luck in getting every user to understand this conundrum that you have. But while I'm speaking of problems that gaming phone manufacturers have had to overcome, you know, I want to talk a bit about the unique hardware accessories that were available for the various ROG phones in the lineup, because there were several quite innovative ones that I was really interested in using. But over time, they became semi-discontinued because they were not made to be compatible with newer devices. And why that happened, there's many different reasons, but I want to talk about a few of them. So there's the Ygig display dock, for those of you who don't know, uses 60 gigahertz Wi-Fi to enable extremely fast, ultra low latency display mirroring. So like you could have your phone and instantly see and connect and control whatever's happening on screen by just by streaming your game from your phone to your TV. And then you have the mobile desktop dock, which enables you connecting a 4K display plus a keyboard and a mouse to the ROG phone and be compatible with the one, two, and three models. And then you have the twin view dock, which literally turns your ROG phone into a Nintendo DS with a second screen on top, which also has a higher refresh rate. So I love these really niche products. They were a bit pricey, but they were very unique, innovative products. But I think the story of a lot of these kind of niche hardware accessory products, especially these products not really taking off, is I think probably the lack of software compatibility. In particular, with the mobile desktop dock and the TwinView dock, both were kind of released before Android really gained robust support for secondary displays or foldable displays. So with the TwinView dock, you had so a, a tiny collection of apps that were actually able to split their views between two displays. Nowadays, that's something Google is pushing heavily. With the mobile desktop dock, back then, Google didn't really make a big push to optimize apps on desktop. But now with 12L and 13, you have Google saying, make your apps compatible with all large screens, whether that be Chromebooks, whether that be Windows PCs, and whether that be tablets. So I wanted to ask you, like, can you talk a bit about the challenges you faced in getting developer buy-in on these products? Do you think if you were to re-release these products hypothetically today, it would be easier to convince game developers to support them? I'll start by answering the second question. Do we have an easier time today than we had in the first generation? And the answer is yes. It's easier. I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's easier. Also, it, it just ties in, you know, is it easier to for us to get people to understand, you know, any type of people, to understand what is a gaming smartphone? You know, people are gaming on their smartphone. That is something we tend to not need to explain so much anymore. So in the same vein as in, you know, oh, here's a gaming smartphone and it makes sense. Let's do things together, you know, to optimize for gaming smartphones. It's easier. And then going back to the first question, it's still difficult, <laughs> I should say. And I assume it is down to the nature of the market as it is right now, or the way game developers spend a lot of time, uh, obviously uh, writing, creating their games. And as we mentioned earlier on, you know, the, the mobile gaming market is huge. It's a, what was it, $100 billion market. But that market is obviously not comprised of, you know, people on gaming smartphones. People using gaming smartphones within that market is a very small amount still, right? And even flagship phones is not the dominant category within that slice of cake. So without speaking for game developers, but I can really understand, you know, game devs for mobile, you have such a huge variety of 
hardware, probably a, a larger spectrum of performance than on PC. Obviously, console, console, you just have you know one or maybe two right now. Nowadays, you get you get two per generation. So they optimize most of the stuff for the majority, or they kind of draw a line, and then say it has to be this good, and then they put their effort on that. I would assume as well. But with gaming smartphones and flagships becoming more and more popular, more people use it, it makes more sense to offer kind of that extra tier, right? Now we see more and more games. Almost every top tier mobile game offers now uh, you know, a 30 or a 60 FPS mode. I think that's the, the first thing you will see that game developers will add a faster frame rate mode. And some games will uh, add even further on. TwinView, I, I love TwinView. I really liked it. But as you mentioned, Android wasn't really ready for it. But we tried it. I love that we did that thing, right? That product. Game developers, it was challenging for them to add, you know, because it was only on one device, right? So you have your game and maybe it's played by 20, 30 million people, but you would do something that would only work for the players on one specific device which weren't obviously the majority. So that was quite difficult to do with a lot of things. Why gig as a thing, that was pretty fun, but also it, it didn't pan out. I think a lot of these things was just, we wanted to try a lot of things. You know, it's just a blue ocean. Don't, we don't want to say no to anything, but then over time we see, you know, some things obviously work better than others. A mobile desktop dock, we don't have that, but you could use a dongle. That will still work today, right? It doesn't have to be ours. It's just a USB Type-C dongle with a display port out and USB ports, and it's going to work all the same. So there's some aspects that we kind of transform into other parts, and some things will be great. Really fun to revisit them one day. Uh, let's hope for that. And uh, yeah, it's not so easy, but I think we've come the furthest out of our, our competitors in, in doing these type of things. And, and we will continue to do a lot of crazy things, uh, I believe. And just to put it out there, Asus rightly deserves a reputation as being the most, let's say, exploratory. When it comes to Android hardware concepts, I will never forget saying the original Transformer unveiling at MWC <laughs> with Johnny up there in the magician and, oh, and then they had it in, you know, the glass pedestal at the actual booth and we called it, uh, and this was not meant derogatorily because we thought it was hilarious, uh, the turducken phone, because, yeah. you know, you would essentially just keep stacking <laughs> computing devices on top of it until you yeah. got what you wanted. So no, stuff definitely. like that, obviously, was that was so innovative and totally ahead of the curve. And Asus has always been doing stuff like that. Yeah, I think it's really part of our DNA in a way, right? In product design, not just for smartphone or Android, you know, transformers, uh, the tablets, uh, the pad phone, if you remember it, the phone that slotted into a, a larger tablet accessory that you got two in one. Already there, we saw that is what I meant. The pad phone. Sorry, yes. <laughs> so, so that, you know that kind of lived for three generations, I believe. Uh, and the, we we also had that wild concept: a phone in a tablet in a dock. If you remember, uh, I think it was the Transformer Pad Five or something like that. that yeah, the Transformer Pad, the original one. Okay, that's what I was talking about—the original Transformer Pad, because that's that was a blow everybody's mind moment. Yeah, you know, with the phone is slotted into the tablet. <laughs> a lot of crazy stuff, and and ROG phone kind of continues that in a way. We just do a lot of. It might seem weird to some, 
But I think for us, it's, we've been talking about it a lot in, in that it's fun to not always do the same things as everybody else, right? There are lots of good options out there, but there's no option like the ROG phone. Our, you know, so that's kind of also what we try to do. And hopefully we can keep doing these fun things. It's really fun to do them. And some work out and some, unfortunately, they don't work out very well. And, and, and then, yeah. I think if you look at a lot of these, these uh, unique, I'd say, interesting hardware developments, the reason a lot of them don't work out that well is because software is such a major challenge. When you don't have first-class support within the operating system for these desktop, like, uh, for example, the TwinView dock, Android didn't really have great support for spanning across dual displays at the time, or with the mobile desktop dock, Android at the time didn't really have great support for secondary displays, which it now is working towards. So these are the biggest challenges I'd say for these actual, for these products. And it's something that really only Google as like the gatekeeper of Android can solve by buying in. And it seems like they're finally doing some things on that front with Android 12 and their game API, game dashboard, et cetera. But you did bring up one thing, Jiao, about refresh rates that I, I'm sure many people really want to know. So refresh rates, we've had phones with over 60 hertz refresh rates for a long time now. And I can tell, like I, I've looked at the Android developer documentation and there are APIs to determine whether or not a device supports certain refresh rates above 60 hertz. But despite how common this is, from what I've seen, most game developers, they use like a, a whitelist system to decide which devices they want to expose their higher refresh rate or higher graphics options on. And this is particularly frustrating for users of less popular devices. If you have a Samsung Galaxies, sure, your device is probably supported because it's a very popular Android device. But if you have another device with a 90 hertz or 120 hertz display, there's no guarantee that your favorite game will expose that option for you, even though you know your device should be capable of it. So can you talk a bit about this inconsistency? Why does this happen? I, I don't know exactly why these things happen. I have my guesses, obviously. I think one of the root causes is specifications do not match the performance, right? That's number one. A game developer can know, does this phone have a 90 hertz display? Yes, but this doesn't mean that it has this powerful flagship CPU, right? So it could be a really mid-range or even quite entry-level device nowadays. But they won't run PUBG, let's say, at 90 FPS well. They, they just won't. So should you give the user the option anyway? I think on the one hand, you could say just enable everything for everyone and let the user decide, right? And in a way, you, you could take that stance. But I also know from kind of from our experience that a lot of users struggle with that, right? So they will just say, oh, the game runs really bad. There's something wrong. And immediately think that there's something wrong, as in it's broken or we've done something wrong or the game developer done something wrong. And I think the only, let's say wrong, would be that we allowed you to choose. And then there's a lot of this back and forth. So I can understand them that they take a more cautionary approach in that we want to make sure that the modes turn on for those devices that can handle it above a, let's say, an arbitrary line that they draw, whatever that may be. Because as far as I know, there's not a lot of dynamic graphic switching right now in, in Android. You know, it could just scale down automatically and hit a certain target frame rate. That could be a good, maybe, hopefully a solution uh, if that would be a good API that just, it would just switch graphics automatically a lot and based on that. But yeah, it's a bother in a way. And I understand why it's there. 
And it's, some developers do it on a per device basis and some do it on like a per platform. So they will detect certain platforms and then they will, those settings will appear. One of the downside of that or, or, or of anything I would say is that usually it, it takes some time to validate and to make, let's say to have these settings go through the entire flow, right, process. So you have the latest processors coming out. They're not whitelisted because they're the newest one. So they haven't finished, but we kind of released them. They're, they're released to the market uh, before. So this is a common issue every year, generally speaking. A Gen 1s, A plus Gen 1, and then I, I obviously the new ones. No, I mean, you could even liken that to the situation with GPU drivers on desktop PCs. You always have day one patches because there is always something being shipped before it's actually ready. <laughs> exactly. And there's also this thing in not just gaming, right? You have, uh, I remember um, Photoshop. I think it was Photoshop for Android or some type of, no, the camera, Photoshop camera from Adobe. That was also on a whitelist base, like six devices at first. And yep. then eight and then 10 and maybe everything and maybe not. It's just, I assume it's for compatibility. They get a lot of complaints. If they just open it, things don't. You know. Yeah, we talked about this a lot. My favorite F word, fragmentation. And we spent a whole episode talking about Android's camera problems a couple of weeks ago. And, oh, you know, yeah. this problem also is very prevalent in Android game development as right. a... I was just going to say it's because you have like, you know, you have different versions of Qualcomm's Adreno drivers across devices. You probably have actual differences in the Android OS distro, like which Android are you running exactly? All these things that could affect performance. And from a developer's perspective, a game dev, if your option is to make the game available as the minimum viable experience to users of a new device versus enable all the things and see what happens and your livelihood depends on that Google Play Store rating, what are you going to do? Like, it's not even a choice, right? Oh, definitely. And it's not Android, but I think something that I have learned or experienced over the years is, I know, I don't know if it's blasphemy on, on, on an Android blog, but how much effort Microsoft puts in for Windows compatibility on hardware. It's quite amazing, right? The, the back end of things, because all of the different choices all of the different things, it just plays in a way. But then it's it's that platform, the x86 platform, and everything just over the years, it just works, kind of. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, Microsoft's driver signing model has like enabled Windows to live far longer than I think it otherwise would have. Because literally, like you said, it just works. You get, you submit your driver to Microsoft as a vendor, you get it signed, and Microsoft says, yep, it will work on every version of Windows that the signature is valid for. And with Android, yeah. it's just not modular in that way. You know, the exactly. OS wasn't designed that way. You know, touching on this, it's the gamepad or the game controller situation on Android is also, it can be really frustrating. You, you have the kind of the basic, I, I think there's this Android hardware extraction layer, right? For gamepads or game controllers. But then you have games actually not using that. Then they, they will whitelist specific game controllers instead because then they can ensure that game controllers work. So we kind of run into that every now and then with the Kunai, which is, uh, you know, it, it supports the Android layer. That's perfectly fine. But then you have games that supports, let's say, only the Xbox controller. And then it doesn't support the other controllers, but they could. And then we need to kind of work around that and add support for that as well and work with developers and so on. So that's, yeah, it's a lot of work. <laughs> I think, I'm, and, and Ben quote me this because I'm not an expert on input 
in Android, but I believe prior to Google's development of the Android games SDK, there wasn't really a simple solution for developers to enumerate what game controllers are connected to the device and then map those inputs into like a, into like a game. Like you can do that. You can detect button presses and then map those. And like Android has predetermined pre laid out key layout files that map button presses to Linux input presses. But most game developers, you know, they want like a, you would want like a simple solution that provides, okay, we have these game controllers supported and you can just simply add this library into your game and map these buttons to certain inputs within the game's context. And I think that's part of what Google is doing with the Android games SDK and all these various APIs that they're working on. And so, you know, a lot of the blame is not really, can't really be placed at the, at the hands of game developers because Android, as you mentioned, wasn't really built for gaming from the get-go. Google was playing catch up pretty late, I'd say, considering we're in Android 12 and we're finally seeing all of these efforts after considering how popular mobile gaming has been. And Google knows how popular it's been considering how much money they make off of it. And like, even with things as like simple, how do you determine if a device is performant enough to handle my game running at the highest quality settings? There's just no good way to tell. The best way is literally to just buy a phone or add the newest CPU model that you know, reading a press release from Qualcomm saying, here's our flagship model. Okay, we'll add that SSC model to our whitelist. Or, you know, just going out and buying devices. Like, there's no real way to tell whether or not a device is performant enough. And there are some efforts, like the performance class API, but that's particularly just for media tasks. Then there's now a game mode API, which is kind of like user slash app opt-in. There are predefined game modes that a developer can say, I want these settings applied for this game mode. And then the user can select that game mode. But because the feature that it's tied to the game dashboard is currently a pixel exclusive and hasn't yet rolled out to other devices, which I believe is expected to happen with Android 13 through Google play services. There's not much of an incentive to support this new game mode API because it's only available on a single device, the pixel six, but there are things that Google is doing to improve the situation and whether or not they'll succeed in making it less of a pain for game developers to support thousands of different device models remains to be seen. But considering the absolute size of the mobile gaming market, I think there's no question that they have to succeed. Otherwise they're shooting themselves in the foot. <laughs> well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, they're doing a lot of things. They're playing catch up obviously, but it's just because there's so many things to be done, right? And, and what do you do first, even, even for a company uh, the size of Google, I think they just have their work cut out for them, right? They will never be done in, in that sense. And in terms of like the game dashboard and that become, you know, that's part of all Pixel Android. A lot of those things are, are things that we've already done for years, right? On gaming smartphones, on ROG phone. And it's great to see that these things are added to Google's Android. And hopefully they will kind of trickle down to everybody and, and pick them up at will. And depending on how they do, you know, do we need to change our code to just redo the same things? That's also a part of the struggle, right? To, to kind of keep up with Android, but also Android keeping up with the OEMs. And, and we do stuff and we invest code and, and there are certain ways to do things. And then Android comes in and adds the same thing, but in a different way. And then you need to redo everything or, or how, how do you kind of fit that in? But it, why, you know, let's see. I think one of the big challenges is also on how do you tune the performance for your different 
modes, right? A very bursty, instantaneous performance is very different from sustained performance on a smartphone because you don't have that cooling dissipative capability as larger game systems. Uh, most phones don't have that. So it's how do you work with the CPU cores, GPU, and all the subsystems to kind of get the most out of your device. Having performance that's really, really fast and peak performance for five minutes is vastly different than having it for 35 minutes or even 60 minutes. Basically, you cannot have the same performance that you have for five minutes, but over 60 minutes. Well, I mean, there are ways, but they're not very practical for most devices, right? So you have active cooling, you have these things, you have game modes. And then how do our game modes, how do our tuning come in and is that going to be the same way that Google decides to do it with the API? I, I don't know how that would work, but yeah, they, it's going to be a lot of uh, trial and error, I suppose, in, in how to make performance uh, work for short-term and, and for long-term. Because yeah, I would say the workload is so different playing games versus web browsing, I guess, or Netflix or these type of things. Sure. You also have just kind of a different barrier for what constitutes acceptable performance in a video game. And if you drop below that, the user's experience can basically go from passable to zero. I don't want to play the game anymore. So for developers, obviously, they'd be concerned about that before. It's why they want to optimize. So, you know, a chipset does not tell you the whole story, which is, I think, what you see when people talk about this stuff on Twitter. It's like, oh, well, it's a Snapdragon so-and-so, and they're all the same. They should all perform the same. And... Well, in a perfect world, yeah, they should, <laughs> but they don't. And but they don't, you know, yeah. And the devices that they're in are vastly different, right? We could just right. take a look at our two devices. This year, they both use Snapdragon 8 Plus Gen 1. One is the ROG Phone 6. It's a big phone, 240-odd grams. And then on the other end, you have a Zenfone 9, you know, the 5.9 inch, 160, 69 grams, I think. They're vastly different. They have the same chip inside they're not going to perform the same. They simply aren't because they're not built the same. They're not the same size. They're, they don't have the same things, but they can offer the same burst performance, definitely. That's not the same as, you know, we're going to run this and this, or let's say Genshin Impact, right? Max setting and just run it for an hour. You know, you will see those limitations coming in much sooner on, on the Zenfone 9 than you would on the ROG phone. And for a game developer, it, it's how would they know? Between out of all of the thousands of phones out there every year, there's hundreds of phones every year. And then a game lives on for, uh, I don't know how long, many, many years, right? So it's just so many tiers of performance that they need to keep track of. And I think it's, yeah, difficult for them as well. And I don't know if the tools that are kind of offered or being offered, will they be enough, you know, currently to, to kind of solve that problem? So Chihau, this has been a very interesting discussion to say the least. I know it's a very, very complicated topic and we could definitely talk for another hour on this, but you know, we, we got to end somewhere. And I think now's a good time to start closing off. And yeah. before I close off though, I do want to mention, you know, if this is one space you have to keep an eye on mobile gaming, it's not going to stop. And with Microsoft moving into bringing Android app support on windows 11 through the windows subsystem for Android, Google countering with the Google play games for PC, one of the primary use cases they're touting for both of these platforms is gaming. 
and bringing Android games onto PCs has already been a thing among like many, many different gamers who are using like emulators, like third party solutions to do this. And then, you know, with the, the size of the mobile gaming industry, as we already mentioned, 2022 project to be $100 billion, like this is one industry you cannot ignore. It is too big to ignore. So learning and understanding, you know, where we stand and how OEMs like Asus are addressing the needs of mobile gamers, I think it's a, it's a pretty good way to understand where the winds are flowing. Yeah. And it's an interesting space from the hardware perspective because there are so many ways you can build an Android gaming device. A phone is one form factor for Android gaming. But if you are looking more into a dedicated gaming device kind of situation, something that is a home console or a portable console or even an arcade cabinet machine, arcade <laughs> cabinets running Android, they already sell them, they exist. And you are in the business of selling these things, distributing them or supporting them, you need a way to manage them. And that's not always straightforward. So if you want a partner, it's gonna help you end to end from finding the right hardware, picking the right software, and then making sure that you can scale that product, come talk to us at Esper. We help companies build Android devices, everything from a climbing machine that weighs hundreds of pounds and has a giant touchscreen attached to it, to a walkie-talkie that first responders use, firefighters and police officers that doesn't even have a touchscreen. We help so many companies with such a variety of Android products, and that's why we want to talk about gaming devices today, because it is, you know, smartphones aside, gaming phones being their own thing, Dedicated gaming devices for Android have been around for a long time. I mean, really, as long as Android has been around, there's at least a somebody trying to do a dedicated Android gaming device. Some of them did not do so well. But I think it's a market that's ripe for exploration. And as we've seen, advances in cooling, advances in processor performance, and reduced fragmentation at the platform level are helping make this possible. So again, if that's interesting to you, if you're in that space, come talk to us at Esper. We can help you scale your device business. Thanks, David. And Jihao, where can people find you online if you, you know, are on social media or anywhere else? Actually, actually I'm, I'm not uh, very active on social media. So unfortunately, there's no good way to tag me. But uh, every now and then I will appear somewhere. And uh, yeah, on this podcast, for example. Well, thank you for joining us. It's, it was very nice to have this yeah. frank discussion with you about gaming phones and yeah. you've been working on this for so long so i'm sure you have a lot of insights that you know you've built up over the years yeah thank you no it's been it's been good fun it's always nice to get an opportunity to talk about the things that we obviously we talk about internally a lot every day over and over and uh, uh it's been good fun thank you for inviting me and thank you everyone for listening to another episode of android bites we'll see you next time